Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Hey, Vanessa. Oh, hello, Casper. Do you know, rather than cutting the Sopaphorus beam, one ought to crush it with the side of a silver dagger to really release the juices? I do know that. I'm so glad. Yeah. You would get top marks in my potions class. I don't know why it's my potions class. (laughs) I clearly excelled at astrology. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about everything we are excited about with Half-Blood Prince, but we have a few announcements before. First is that we have revamped our Patreon. (gasps) (laughs) So the thing that I am most excited about is that now when you join our $5 tier or above, you are going to get a limited to Patreon only for the next year at least sticker that says, (gasps) meet me in Majorca. Like Aunt March. <laughs> and we always say that to each other when we have to come up with a random place. We're like, mm, Majorca. Yes. I think that this means at one point you and I are going to just have to go to Majorca. Guys, let's do a live show in Majorca. <laughs> holiday destination. Who needs holiday weddings? Holiday live shows. And then if you join for $15 a month, you're going to get an enamel mug. Ooh. Ooh. And then if you join at any amount from a dollar a month, you get an extended blooper reel of... Casper telling me that I'm beautiful. The bloopers are one of my faves. And whatever amount you give, you'll get a blooper reel. And we so appreciate all of you supporting. We've got over 1,200 people supporting us on Patreon. And you are the engine of this community. So thank you, everyone, so much. The second announcement is very exciting for me because... It is exciting for us all. (laughs) Friends, I'm writing a book. And I'm really excited about it. And it's called The Power of Ritual. And so much of it comes from the conversations that I've had with Vanessa and Ariana and with all of you thinking about sacred reading as one of the amazing ancient rituals that we can translate into a new context. So the book is coming out probably in June of 2020, and it's looking at all sorts of different ancient practices that help us to feel connected. I'll tell more about it once we get close to the time, but right now I'm writing and editing and I'm very grateful for all of your support and encouragement. And hopefully you'll like the book because I wrote it for you. It's really good. I've read it. And if you don't like it, you are incorrect. Thanks, Vanessa. I'm so excited. And finally, because we've had such an explosive growth in local groups, we are going to shout out a local group in every episode of season six, because there's more than 30 local groups around the world now. There are 42. 42. But who's counting? Who's counting? 
So if you're in a local group, keep your ears out because every episode will give you a little shout out. And if you'd like to start a group, reach out. We've got Maggie, who's working with us, who helped launch the Chicago group, who is on hand to help you navigate any questions. And we've learned one thing sitting in the studio all these years. Sacred reading is better together. And the first local group that we are shouting out because it was her idea is the Western Mass Group, which is run by Angela Clark. So go to harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups and you will see all of our groups. And if you live in Western Massachusetts, you should definitely join Angela and all of her wonderful peers who read the books together. So what are you excited to talk about in Half-Blood Prince? I feel like this is the book I've been waiting for to really live my Draco fantasy. I have a t-shirt which says Draco Malfoy is my boyfriend. I think sometimes it scares people a little bit. <laughs> but I, ju- I just love the Malfoys as a like cast of characters throughout this book. Obviously, Draco gets set this task which is overwhelming to him and we see him struggle and struggle as the book progresses. But we also see, we really get to know Narcissa for the first time. So I, I just really love that whole Malfoy drama. How about you? Oh, I couldn't agree more on that. I feel like getting to know the Malfoys as a unit of three. I feel like we have these three units of three with single sons, the Dursleys, Petunia, Vernon, and Dudley. And then we have the Malfoys with Narcissa, Lucius, and Draco. And then obviously we have Lily, James, and Harry. And it's the different dynamics and the way that they play out. And I just think, I think Dumbledore does a really good job early in the book of like changing our expectations and our ways of viewing all of these dynamics by saying to, he says to Petunia and Vernon, like, it's really awful, all the terrible things that you've done to Harry. At least you haven't done as much damage to him as you have to Dudley. What a burn. It's such a good burn. And they are all sort of like confused. And so I think that these three family dynamics of these like trios with single sons are so interesting. And I think Narcissa's love for Draco is so interesting. And I think that the different ways that all three of these boys try to please their fathers and live up to their father's reputations are so interesting. And so I think really getting to know Narcissa Understanding why Draco takes on this task as a way to make up for his father's reputation, I just think it's fascinating. Well, and especially we've had so many books focused on the kind of Gryffindor, common room and heritage. Now this book really gives us a lot of Slytherin. Yeah. Um, So we've got the Malfoys that we've mentioned, but we're also going to learn a lot more about Voldemort. Tom Riddle. Um, And of course, Snape plays such a central role. And Slughorn. And Slughorn. (gasps) We meet Slughorn, who's a Slytherin. That's right. And it's a complicated Slytherin, right? Turns out there are no simple Slytherins. (laughs) I think we can't fall into the lazy tropes of like Slytherin equals like scary bad person because we see Slughorn really struggle with responsibility and with personal sacrifice. And he has to kind of navigate putting himself first and second. (laughs) This is when I really fell in love with like the Slytherin identity because I think Slughorn is this perfect case study where we see even when we do something right, we don't always do it for the right reasons. And even when we do something wrong, we might have done it for the right reasons. I I, I just love Slytherin identity as lived out through Slughorn. And we're going to meet him in just a few chapters as he kind of tries to avoid Dumbledore's call to go to Hogwarts, but ultimately he does accept and becomes a really influential teacher as now Snape has moved to defense against the dark arts. That is so interesting. I did not know that that was why you identified as a Slytherin. 
I really find that reason compelling because Slughorn obviously has a lot of great qualities, right? He right. brings students together in a social way. He's somebody who lives with a tremendous amount of shame and regret yeah. in such a live way that I find fascinating and I'm really excited to explore that. This makes so much more sense to me why you love identifying as a Slytherin. If you think of like book six is really the exploration of what it means to be a Slytherin. Because, yeah, in meeting the young Tom Riddle, you really get a sense of ambition without Mm. totally knowing what it's about yet. And I think that you see the potential in who Tom Riddle could have been right? and obviously did not turn out to be. Yeah, this is where it gets so complex because, you know, Slughorn is the one who ultimately tells Riddle about Horcruxes. You know, that's that crucial piece of information which shapes who Voldemort is going to become in, in such a massive way. And perhaps Riddle would have found out one way or another, and perhaps he wouldn't. But there's something really interesting, I think, about this question of responsibility of knowledge and responsibility of care. If you are someone's caretaker or you're in a loco parentis, right, like in a boarding school where you you have the place of a parent, where you're responsible for a child's well-being, it has all these interesting ethical questions because he is teaching him. And so this really fine line of when when is it responsible to share something? When is it dangerous? I also think that Slughorn, just in the way that you were talking about it, Slughorn's relationship of Tom Riddle makes me think of a lot of incidents that we're hearing about with the Me Too movement. Yes. Where it's, yes. oh, in hindsight, what I did was maybe culturally appropriate at the time. Yes. But, oh, my God, I have so much shame around what I did. And what do I do with the fact that I deeply regret something that I did, you know, 20 years ago? And I think Slughorn apologizes and deals with that shame in the not super mature great way that we see a lot of men doing, where we see some men obviously standing up and being like, I regret what I did. It was culturally appropriate at the time, but it shouldn't have been right. and like bad and shame on me. Whereas other men do this like hedging of like, right. it was fine at the time. I didn't know. And so I think that there's like something so relevant about the Slughorn Tom Riddle relationship. Yeah. Well, and of course, that's mirrored in such an interesting way in Harry and Dumbledore. And that becomes really central towards the end of the book as we see, spoiler alert, friends, the demise of Dumbledore. You know, it is that moment where the hero surpasses the mentor at the end of the book, where Harry is left really alone. You know, book seven is going to be him and and Ron and Hermione off on their own um, with no one to really teach them. So that kind of teacher-student relationship, I think, is really central here. And you could even say that it happens between Snape and Draco as well, that you have this promise that Snape makes to Draco's mother at the very beginning of the book. Just as we have those three family units, I think we have these three teacher-student kind of couples that we that we might track through the book. Yeah, of Slughorn and Tom Riddle, Dumbledore and Harry, and Snape and Draco. Right. That's so interesting. I think that part of the reason that I love book six so much is that we get so much face time with Dumbledore. Yeah. And as complicated of feelings as I have about Dumbledore intellectually, whenever he's on the page, I do. I just feel comforted. There's something so lovable about Dumbledore, even with all of his flaws, because just like I can't deny the fact that as soon as he shows up at the Dursleys, I'm like, everything will be all right. But can we not forget the thing that's most exciting about book six? (laughs) You can talk about teenage romance. (laughs) Oh, my God. The drama. (laughs) 
I love the drama. I'm here for all the drama. Lavender really gets short shrift, which I'm really excited to talk about. Justice for Lavender. Oh, my God. Lavender. I know. And just, I really think one of the top three moments in all of the books happens here when Hermione summons birds to go after Ron. (laughs) And I am anti-violence, but. Except for birds. I will say that I feel like with this book, the movie has kind of imprinted itself on my mind. And I want to, especially when it comes to the teenage like love triangle dramas, I really want to get back into the text rather than what I remember from the screen. Not that I didn't enjoy the movie, but I, I really want to hear what the text has to say, um, especially about Lavender. As you said, I think she she kind of becomes you know, a kind of caricature of herself, certainly in the movie. Um, So I want to see if that's true on the page as well. I haven't seen the movie. Maybe that's why I love Lavender. That's awesome. I think the thing that I really want to do is just one of the most comforting and lovely things that an adult ever said to me was Ms. Lyons, my drama teacher in high school, was like listening to some students in the class pine about lost love. And they said, I'm sorry, this must seem really silly to you. And she was like, no, I remember feelings at your age. Those feelings are big and real feelings. She was like, I will never minimize your feelings. It was just like such, uh, even though it wasn't about me, it felt so validating to be like, oh, even though I'm 14 or 15, my feelings are real. And Hermione's feelings are so real. She's being crushed by this. And then Ron's feelings of inadequacy and like of going about it in just like this gross bro-y way of like making out with a girl that he doesn't really like in order to get experience is like also really real and then poor Lavender like we can joke about like how silly it is but like the feelings are so real and hard and I just want to like kiss them all on the forehead and (laughs) hug them and I also want to think about, like, how do we know when we love someone? You know, their relationship has gone from friendship to romance, which is very apropos. And if you haven't downloaded Hot and Bothered. Friendship to lovers is my favorite trope. Well, so I want to let's talk about that in, in this context as we see that relationship progress and change. Like, what are the moments when you start to think, oh, wait, hang on, there's something different here. Or like, I'm noticing in myself that I feel something maybe that I didn't expect I would feel. And not just in a like, oh, isn't it fun to think back, you know, if we are older to our teenage days. But listen, whether you're a celebrate priest or in a committed relationship, you're going to feel things for people. And so how do you navigate that? How do you notice that? What do you do? Obviously, there might be a choice to explore that. But there might also be a moment to be like, oh, I'm going to notice this. And I want to stay with the person I'm with. Or I want to stay in in celibacy because, of course, there are so many priests that listen to our show <laughs> that this would apply to. But but really that question of what do I do when I notice attraction, mm-hmm. um, I think could be really interesting to explore. Yeah. And the other thing that I've been giving a lot of thought to is what what is the difference between a friendship and a romantic relationship or a mm. partnership? And the thing that I've really come away with is that friendship is a relationship in which you can like sort of drift apart and find each other again. Mm. Whereas if you are in a daily committed partnership with somebody, there's just a different equation and like a different set of mathematics that you have to be doing. And so I think that we think of relationships sometimes as like friendship with benefits. Mm. And I think that Ron and Hermione are navigating like, Mm. what does it mean that I 
love my best friend in a romantic way. And of course, that transition is going to be awkward and murky. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of going from a person to the person or like my person. Yeah. And I think that they're realizing that it's not just like friendship with snogging. Right? <laughs> if it was, they would just snog and get it over with. That is one word I have not said since I moved to America. It's such an English word. Snog. Snogging. Well, it's in this book a lot. So that's <laughs> something else I'm looking forward to is the great use of the word snog. And then the other thing that obviously I am so excited in this book is like spending more time with the awesome Ginny Weasley. She really comes to the fore in this book. Yes, she does. The reason that Ron starts feeling inadequate about his lack of snogging experience is because he like slut shames Ginny. And Ginny is like, just because you haven't kissed anyone doesn't mean that kissing people and sexuality is wrong. And she's just this like sex positive guru. And then she gets the guy she's always been in love with. Talk about a romance novel, being in love with someone since you were like nine years old and then finally getting him and like not in a teeny bopper way, but in a like legitimate soulmate way. Uh, swoon, Jenny. Started from the bottom. Now we're here, Jenny. <laughs> and I also want to use Jenny to be kinder to Ron. I think that it is easy to be very frustrated with Ron in this book. And I want to, at minimum, see him as Harry and Hermione see him. And also, I just think, like, I need to start to see myself more in Ron. I think he's, like, very easy to toss aside for mistakes that I make every day, right? Like being oblivious. How many people am I oblivious to in a day? You know, sometimes being insensitive to other people's feelings because I have a goal. Hi, my whole life. <laughs> so the way that we, you know, that you very early on in this process encouraged us to see the Dursley-ishness within ourselves, mm. I think I want to see, not that I am comparing Ron and the Dursleys, but I, I think that I want to see Ron and myself, the just like dopey, well-intended like moments. The other thing that I think is really important to think about as we enter book six is that the context for the story has changed completely. If you think about the kind of wizarding culture and society, you know, now there's a widespread acceptance that Voldemort has returned. We've seen changes in the ministry. Fudge is gone, although he's still an advisor, which I'd be worried about for my PR. But Scrimger is now the new minister of magic. And there's just a, a gloomy sense of, I don't want to say defeat, but a hardiness of entering another war. But at the same time that we have this kind of gloomy, hardy, gritty context, you know, the, the joke shop of the twins really stands out as this wonderful contrast. And it has maybe one of my favorite quotes from the whole books, which is, why are you worrying about you-know-who when you should be worrying about you-know-poo, the constipation sensation that's gripping the nation? No better poetry has ever been written. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, there there used to be that stereotype that skirts get shorter during war. Yes. And there are studies about how during hard times, musical theater becomes more popular. Musicals make it back into wow. um, popular culture and into movies. And I think that the twins are sort of the embodiment of that in this book, right? The war is like open. Voldemort is back. And so a joke shop arises it's a reminder of the humanity that you're fighting for, mm. right? Yeah, it's more than an antidote. It's an actual embodiment of why we're doing this in the first place. That's really lovely. I would really like you to hold my feet to the fire on this next thing that I'm looking for in this book, which is I don't want to forget about heartthrobly Jordan. 
His two best friends have abandoned him. We know that he, a year from now, is going to be a crucial part of the resistance Mm. by being like the underground media for the resistance. What is Lee up to now that he's been left behind by his two best friends? Isn't that obvious? McGonagall one-on-one teaching? I think so, too. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think he is going to learn from somewhere how to take the gift that he has, which is commentating Quidditch matches, and turn it into a tool of uh, of resistance, which is to stop this underground radio station. And that's something I think that I love seeing in these books, that you see each of the characters really discover, what is my thing to give? We've talked about the twins as offering this, you know, symbolic embodiment of what we're all fighting for. We're going to see Harry, Ron, and Hermione go and chase the Horcruxes. We're going to see Neville and Ginny lead the DA. They already have. And so each character is finding what they can give to fight for the world that they long for, which I think is an invitation for all of us. You know, what is it that we can do that's authentic to who we are, but that nonetheless risks something for what we know to be right? I mean, Dumbledore even so much as to to allow himself to be killed in order to help move that dial. So, Yeah, I love what you just said about what is it that we can do that can be authentic to who we are, but that's still risking something. Mm. I think that that is such a fine balance and such a like beautiful way to think about the way that we walk through the world, mm. that we shouldn't be sacrificing our identities. You know, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of what's going on at the border. Mm. I'm like, what can I authentically do within mm. the powers that I have, mm. but that still are risky and still cost me, right? Because I do like Dumbledore models for us. Um, like Lee Jordan does, right? Like, I do want to put myself at risk for these causes that matter to me. And so, yeah, I really love that. And so I want to see, because Quidditch is actually back in book six. Uh I remember being excited about Quidditch being back in book five because I was like, oh my God, the four wizard tournament. There was no Quidditch. It just got canceled and I can't believe I missed it. And instead we were risking children's lives. Try wizard tournament. It's the four wizard tournament. Let's call things what they are, Casper. (laughs) And then in book five, I forgot that Umbridge swoops in and ruins Quidditch. And I can't believe how much I am like learning the value sports is a form of distraction and joy and whatever. But Quidditch is back and exciting things happen and Harry and Ron are on the same team. And I'm excited to hear what Lee Jordan has to say. And I'm just, Quidditch is actually back this season. Well, and and we get one of the best scenes, which is the whole liquid luck moment, right? Felix Felicis and the kind of moment that Ron thinks he's had some and he does all these amazing saves, but actually it was in him all along and the force lives in him. There's Simba, there's Lion King, there's Star Wars. It's all in one. So Vanessa, as we as we do look back to book five, like what other pieces of that tome are we bringing with us into book six? So the thing that I was thinking about as we started reading is we think of book five as Caps Lock Harry. Yeah. But it's not like Harry's PTSD is now over. <laughs> like we don't think of book six as Caps Lock book. Yeah. But his trauma has just been compounded mm. in the loss of Sirius and in this real battle in which he was scared his friends were dead. And this has only gotten more intense. And sure, people believe him now. So there isn't the gaslighting. Like, I think that there must be like some relief with that. But I think it's important to remember from book five that the trauma isn't over, right? Like, PTSD lasts a lifetime and is something that you live in relationship with. And 
I don't want it to be like book five, PTSD book, book six, that's over. Right, right, absolutely. I'm looking for, well, what can we think of this book as if it's not the kind of all caps PTSD book? I want to say, like, is there some sense of healing? But that's not there. I mean, there's going to be this enormous loss at the end of this book as well. And in some ways, I think actually this is the biggest loss that he experiences. Of course, the end of book seven is his own sort of death resurrection moment. But there's not a sense of abandonment at the end of book seven. This is really the high point, the apex of the kind of, you know, the ultimate mentor, the ultimate wise leader, protective force disappearing. And so I think I like what you're saying, that we should kind of elongate that sense of loss and stress and um, trauma through this book as well. Is there something Harry has now that he hasn't had before? Yeah, I hadn't thought of it until you asked, but his friendship circle is significantly expanding, Mm. right? Like, so he always had Hermione and Ron, and that means so much. But in this book, like, he brings Luna to Slughorn's party, and he and Neville really are friends now. They've really gone through something together. Yeah. And then he he gets Ginny, right, Mm. Um, in a totally new way. And so his friendship circle sort of doubles, and— that matters, Big right? Time. Going yeah. from t- two to five, it more than doubles. And so I, I think that like that's significant. And then the other thing he gets, he gets Dumbledore back in this book. That's huge. Dumbledore would not look at him in book five. And he didn't really have access to Sirius because of Umbridge. He has so much more support in this book, which I guess might be why the caps lock got turned off. Yeah. Well, I just said, well, this can't be a book of healing. But actually it is. If if this is a moment in his narrative where these relationships deepen and richen and multiply, that is one of the biggest things that can help us through moments of intense struggle. And so maybe healing is still too big a word, but at least he's no longer isolated in the way that he was. You know, certainly in book four, we saw like the the media take him on. And then last year we saw, you know, the school turn on him as well. That is really shifted, right? Like the the troops are aligning behind Harry in a way that at least the battle lines are clear, right? You're either with Voldemort or you're with Harry and Dumbledore. And so I think that sense of solidarity is maybe something that is really strong in this book that makes it so enjoyable to read because we we know where good and evil lies. And now the question is just, what are you going to do about it? Which will leave us in a perfect place to start in chapter one as we meet the other minister. So as we get started with chapter one, we've got some amazing guests joining us this season. John Green will be with us for chapter five. Our beloved Matt Potts is going to be back, as well as Mike Schubert from the Potterless podcast, which should be a lot of fun. Yeah, he's hysterical. We're also going to have Gabby Dunn from Bad With Money, who's way too cool for either of us. But (laughs) luckily, she's not too cool for Harry Potter. So there by the grace of God go we. And then we're going to be joined by my dear friend, the incredible writer and environmentalist, Terry Tempest Williams, who I'm just so grateful that I have any excuse to be in a room with her. And so, yeah, I created this podcast as an excuse to be in a room with you. And now I get Terry and it's just (laughs) my evil plot is all coming together. So that's it for this preview episode. We'll be back next week with Chapter One. And as a special treat for you, instead of our usual outro music, our friends over at Harry and the Potters have a new album out called Lumos. And they agreed to let us play one of their songs as we play the credits. So here is Hermione's Army. We hope you enjoy. 
You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 1, The Other Minister, read through the theme of helplessness. We'd also love you to come and join the over a 1,000 people supporting us on Patreon, and you can leave us a review on iTunes, which I like to read before I go to bed. We hope to see you at one of our live shows. We will be in New York City on September 9th, in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, in Washington, D.C. on November 7th, and St. Louis, Missouri on December 19th. And registration for our Virginia Wolf pilgrimage will be launching on October 15th. Don't forget to check out Women of Harry Potter and Hot and Bothered, also produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Chelsea Erson. Our music as ever is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of Nightfell Presents. Huge thanks to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and the wonderful Stephanie Colson. Hey, Vanessa, you know what's better than cutting the Sephora's bean? You've got to crush it with the flat side of a silver dagger to release the juice better. I knew the answer. You just <laughs> mansplained it to me and didn't give me a chance to answer. Really, it's booksplaining. But hi, Vanessa. Did you just mansplain <laughs> booksplaining to me? Hi, Casper.